Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And we got the news recently, John, that the NFL's Pro Bowl will not be played this year due to COVID, at, oh. least, not, at least not with real human players. Uh, there will instead be a Madden video game version of the <laughs> Pro Bowl played, and you know people will be betting on that, uh, whether legally or otherwise. John, how would you feel about me risking our entire virtual bankroll on how many rushing yards virtual Derrick Henry has in a virtual exhibition game? Well, I'm wondering, does the virtual defense wear down in the fourth quarter against the virtual Derrick Henry? You have to (laughs) factor that in. So if they don't make that adjustment, you might be in trouble. You know, I haven't watched a second of the Pro Bowl since my parents got us cable TV circa mid to late 1970s. So uh, Mm. Uh, I do approve of this Madden video game version. Uh, it marries a game I haven't seen in 45 years with a video game that I've never seen at all. So uh, <laughs> I, I can ramp up my I skipped the Pro Bowl game this year to never before seen heights. Well, your parents were early cable adopters, late 70s. That's a little bit ahead of the curve. Uh, I We didn't get it in my household till the early 90s. I was one of the last kids on the block to get uh, to get cable TV. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I have to say, this might be the way to do the Pro Bowl every year going forward, coronavirus or no coronavirus, uh, because in Madden, the players can actually tackle each other, uh, unlike uh, these weird Pro Bowl okay. rules they use now, where it's basically you put your arms around someone and they whistle the play dead. Uh, and the graphics on Madden now look about 99% as good as a real game. So I say let the robots take over and run the world. I'm fine with it. If I never have to watch another Pro Bowl again, that's cool by me. And uh, and now, if you'll excuse me, I have to start strategizing my DFS lineup for the virtual Pro Bowl single game showdown. Oh, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> If they offer it, come on, $3 buy-in, put a team together. Who knows? I rule nothing out. All right. Thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 118 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 117 episodes, they're all available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We always provide the real thing. This podcast is never computer simulated. Uh, Yeah, not yet anyway, but um, (laughs) coming up a little later on the show, we're going to be joined by gambling writer and now gambling podcaster, David Hill, whose narrative podcast series, Gamblers, dropped on the Ringer Podcast Network this week. We'll ask David about the origins of the series, his thoughts on the media sometimes glorifying gamblers, and his take on the Phil Ivey edge sorting saga that has consumed my life for the last six (laughs) years. Uh, But first, it's been a typically busy week, I would say, in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. October sports betting numbers are rolling in, and as was the case in August and September, records are falling left and right. We touched on this last week when a few of the minor sports betting states, namely Indiana, Iowa, and Michigan, showed big October numbers. 
Now New Jersey and Pennsylvania have checked in, and Pennsylvania betting handle is up 13.62% month over month and crossed the half billion dollar mark for the first time, while New Jersey handle is up 7.28% to an all-time single state, single month record of $803.1 million. Meanwhile, online casino revenue in both states also set records, uh, $93.5 million in New Jersey and $59.8 million in Pennsylvania. We also were able to figure out the national sports betting handle total for September a few days ago, as Illinois finally reported, and it ended up at $2.86 billion in all legal U.S. jurisdictions combined. Now, with the way October numbers are trending, it is all but guaranteed the total will surpass $3 billion. I'm guessing it'll be around $3.1 billion when all is said and done. And it might even go up from there in November when Tennessee adds to the pie. Tennessee has reported numbers for the first eight days of action there, and the handle is $27 million, which projects to about $100 million for Tennessee in November. Uh, John, which way do you lean on whether November will re-break the record that October is clearly going to break? And any other thoughts on these massive October figures? Well, I don't think November has quite enough volume of sports to top October, uh, in spite of the Masters and the NBA draft, which both are really good pre-event and in-game betting opportunities. Uh, in fact, look at a perfect world. The handle goes down a little in November because, of course, the house wins. So the intensity of wagers in October left casual bettors a little poorer as well as a little emotionally drained. And if the responsible bettors, then they dial it back a little bit in November. Uh, you know, a boy can dream anyway. <laughs> Huh. Well, I, I, I disagree with you on November. I think it will re-break the October record, although it, I, I think it'll be close. And uh, the fact that November only has 30 days might prove critical if it comes down to a few million bucks. Uh, but but my big takeaway from October is that college football counts for more than NBA, MLB and NHL combined. And, you know, we're seeing a, a steady enough slate of major college games every week. Even if a lot are getting canceled by COVID, there's still plenty left over to bet on. So I, I think when you add Tennessee, when you look at all the states where mobile sports betting is fairly new and it's gathering momentum and acceptance and awareness every month, and then you throw in the Masters for good measure, uh, plus Thanksgiving Day NFL games. A lot of people staying home for Thanksgiving this year, as they should, yeah. leaving them nothing better to do than bet and watch football. Uh, I'm, I'm going to take the over and say that uh, November breaks October's record, although I think I think it's going to be real close one way or the other. All right, I'm going to keep that one off my board now. You uh, talk me out of it a little bit. <laughs> well, listen, if my betting track record uh, proves anything, it's that you shouldn't make decisions based on what I say. But uh, <laughs> um, but but looking at those numbers that we've uh, recently gotten in, I just want to single out the Illinois numbers. Uh, this is a state that is slow to report. They were the last one to give us September numbers. But already they're at $305 million in handle, and more than 92% of it came online. I'm thinking by the 2021 football season, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Illinois could all be in a tight race for number one. And, you know, there could be a month next year when each of them passes a billion dollars in handle and the national total reaches like five billion in a single month. That's I'm, I'm thinking uh, the growth is headed in such a direction that we could get that high a year from now. November 2021. I'm looking ahead. Yeah. Another early over under bet for us to make. Five billion is the line That's... for November 2021. Yeah, and and those the, yeah those states are going to hit that that uh, milestone I think in November 2021. Yeah. All right. Uh, for our second story this week, you're going to have to turn your podcast volume up to hear my voice over the sound of me patting myself on the back. Uh, back in June on this podcast, I suggested a way the World Series of Poker could have its annual $10,000 buy-in main event during this pandemic year by starting the tournament online and playing out a final table live in a COVID-free bubble setting. John reacted very favorably to the suggestion, which inspired me to write up a whole article going into greater detail on the proposal, including pitching the idea to have two online tournaments, one on WSOP.com in the U.S. and one on GG Poker in other countries, and then a combined final table. I then spelled out the idea to Phil Helmuth on our 100th podcast in July, and he loved it too. 
Well, this past Friday, we got the news that there will be a WSOP main event in 2020, and they're doing almost exactly what I suggested. They're making a couple of tweaks to the end game, uh, avoiding the problem I noted with my idea about five finalists from each online tournament making the final table, but with imbalanced chip stacks. Instead, WSOP will have two live final tables, one in Las Vegas and one in Razvadov, Chechia, and then the winners will play each other heads up for an extra million dollars and the bracelet. As of yet, I have not been name-checked in any WSOP press releases. Uh, John, do you think they got the idea from me and just don't want to cut me in on the glory? Or is it likely that they had their own parallel idea cooking all along uh, and making this item a bit less self-serving? Do you think they'll pull this all off despite the COVID complications that figure not to get much better in the next six weeks? Uh, yes, given the numbers we're talking about, I think they can pull it off. Uh, speaking somewhat objectively uh, to the rest of your um, comments, I will <laughs> uh, I'll speculate that they got the idea from Helmuth, who got it from you. Uh, okay. It's only one, de- only one degree of separation, and now for some reason I'm thinking about bacon. But um, your proposal checked <laughs> off all the boxes, really. Uh, a full-scale event has been absurd since mid-March and even more absurd now. Uh, but your premise had a fail-safe for that. You know, if you had pitched having only the final 10 tables on site, let's say, in midsummer, uh, that might have seemed possible at the time and, and wouldn't now. Right. Uh, and even now, having final table action that you suggest seems doable to me. We're probably talking a little more plexiglass than you might have anticipated. But, uh, it's look, it's still high stakes, high drama, and it's poker. So what's not to like? Well, they have specified and spelled out that there will be no plexiglass, that it's basically oh. it's it's a fully tested, you know, everyone gets COVID tested and uh, quarantined before before it starts, uh, which when you're only talking about nine players, it's uh, reasonably doable. But uh, yeah, when I when I interviewed uh, the poker TV producer, Maury Escandani, for my piece on high stakes poker last week, I asked him about plexiglass and he said with the TV lights. You can't do plexiglass. There's just going to be glare uh, everywhere. So no masks, no plexiglass, but uh, but full COVID testing to make this possible. Yeah, I don't know about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I understand if plexiglass doesn't work logistically, visually, uh, then I would go mask. I would do one or the other. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's not a lot of people, but they can be playing for hours. So that's true. Uh, yeah. The, you know, they talk about it's it's proximity, you know, uh, times time so right. it's both so if you're really close to somebody but for 20 seconds it probably doesn't matter and if you're you know reasonably cautious but you're with somebody for hours it could matter so i'm not crazy about that but mm. we'll see what happens. they are gamblers but boy <laughs> right this is, this is gambling all right Jeez. yeah i mean i guess it's it's a, it's a matter then of just do you trust the testing is if if the testing uh, is uh 100 or close to 100 reliable then you're saying that nobody who's in that room has COVID. It, but, uh, you know, I guess people's mileage varies on how much they uh, they trust the testing. It worked out OK for the NBA in their in their bubble. And so that's what True. they're trying to replicate here. Um, if, if I'm giving the WSOP the benefit of the doubt on coming up with this on their own, um, mm. I'm doing I'm doing so because they've done something like this before. The first couple of times that they had an online event as part of the World Series you had to be in Nevada to play it online, and then the final table was played live at the Rio. So it's not like I invented hybrid tournaments. I think it's perfectly possible that they were already thinking about this before I wrote my article. But I'm also sure that people there saw my article and saw the clip of Helmuth talking about it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I- I'm, I'm, cer- I'm certainly open to the possibility that I deserve no credit whatsoever on this and that it's just uh, two parallel ideas that kind of came together. Uh, well, you've given yourself your best shot at getting <laughs> getting uh, more notice. So what the heck? Right. Hey, I, I don't blame you. It's 2020, <laughs> man. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, uh, I haven't been name checked in the press release, as I said. I wouldn't be shocked if our buddy Norman Chad name drops me on the broadcast uh, in, in 2014 uh, during the live final table broadcast. He mentioned my book, The Moneymaker Effect, gave it a nice unsolicited plug. They have a lot of time to fill on these live broadcasts. Uh, so it's possible Norman will make a point to give me a little credit and maybe note how my proposal differed from what the WSOP is doing. And again, they undoubtedly improved upon it. I think the two separate final tables, all separate prize pools then a heads-up match, that's uh, that's way smarter than what I came up with. 
Although I think Norman might mock you for this effort too. So, you know, be careful. Like you may find out if there's no such thing as bad publicity. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I, I'll take that. I'll, I'll take uh, Norm, Norman uh, dropping my name, but getting in some kind of snarky comment. That's better than, than not dropping it at all, I suppose. Sure. Um, and one more quick note on this is just that uh, some poker purists have pushed back on counting whoever wins as part of the lineage, you know, from Johnny Moss to mm. Doyle Brunson to Moneymaker, et cetera. 2020 is a weird year. Everything mm. gets asterisks. Put an asterisk next to it. That's fine. Whoever wins this will have paid $10,000 to enter, beaten a massive field of somewhere between probably 5,000 and 10,000 players, played at least a little bit of the tournament live and in person. To me, it counts. To me, this person is the main event champion, just with a note that it happened during the COVID year and the format had to be tweaked. It doesn't even need an asterisk. 15 years from now, when people look, oh, this guy won in 2020. Oh, that was that COVID year. I mean, you know, with any luck, it's the only one that we'll have. So, <laughs> right. you know, people are going to know what 2020 means, whether it's uh, baseball, football, basketball, hockey, poker, whatever. Right. Uh, and if they want to, you know, adjust downward accordingly, that's their business. But uh, everyone's going to remember what 2020 was. Yeah, we're on the same page on that. All right. Our final news story this week is an update on a story we covered last week, and we might keep updating it every week week or two for a while, casino reclosings. We speculated a week ago that they were coming soon. Now they're here in a few places, most notably some major cities. All three Detroit casinos had to close on Wednesday per Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer's orders. The lone casino in Philadelphia, Rivers, Philadelphia, formerly Sugar House, has to close effective Thursday night. And all casinos in the state of Illinois also have to close by midnight Thursday. Interestingly, Atlantic City is not following Philly's lead, as New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy announced on Wednesday that those casinos will stay open for now, as casinos have not been a major source of viral spread, according to New Jersey's findings. No news out of Las Vegas, Biloxi, Tunica, or any of the other major casino regions yet. The only other note here is that Indiana is talking about dropping to 15% occupancy. Uh, John, any surprises, either in terms of places that are closing casinos down or places that aren't? Well, you know, I just grabbed the Atlantic City reprieve from the governor, so to speak, on my NJOnlineGambling.com article, as for now. I did. But mm -hmm. Murphy did not say that. Uh, he said there's no evidence of any outbreaks in South Jersey or being caused by casino activity. Uh, and this is a few days after news of 251 COVID-positive tests for Atlantic City Casino employees was revealed. And that's from like uh, early July till late October. So last couple of weeks aren't even in there. Uh, every casino's had at least seven cases. And lots of them were employees who work at the many high-end restaurants uh, at these casinos. And, you know, they can still serve those expensive meals indoors at 25% capacity, along with cocktails until 10 p.m each night. Um, so, you know, Atlantic City casinos are nearly level to 2019 month-to-month -month results, thanks to an online casino gaming boom, as well as the mobile sports betting. Mm. So, so politically, Murphy has a stronger hand here to close than many other governors do. It's not a casino revenue death sentence. Um, and there are a lot of positive test results in the state and so forth. So um, I thought that was interesting. No, no caveat of this may change tomorrow. Right. Maybe he was thinking it, but he didn't say it. Um, then again, there's increasing local political pressure on Murphy not to lump South Jersey in with the more infected North Jersey or Central Jersey, if that exists, which is a long running existential question <laughs> in the Garden State, as you probably know. Um, the bottom line is any state that hasn't allowed wagering beyond brick and mortar is in a very tough position to shut that down as well. You know, does it shutter those casinos for good? if they just knock out every every penny of revenue for weeks or months. You know, I live only an hour away from the New York Catskills Casino, for instance, and for the sake of thousands of employees and the local economy there, I'm relieved it hasn't been shut down yet. But I have a bad feeling that it's coming and coming soon. And then they and the other three uh, upstate New York commercial casinos are left with no revenues at all. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Murphy is doing the right thing for now. As you said, he can kind of politically get away with it based on South Jersey numbers, and it makes some sense. If if the casino COVID guidelines are indeed proving fairly effective, you know, casinos don't seem to be super spreaders, sort of like the research on schools. I mean, nothing is 100% safe, but if you're picking and choosing these places and activities where everyone is wearing a mask and distance can be maintained if you're not right in the middle of a hot spot i think murphy's probably making the right call here uh you you 
talk, though, about those casino restaurants and the employees there uh, coming up positive in some cases. That leads me to uh, to, to my big sticking point. I, I think we need, frankly, a federal shutdown on indoor dining, uh, and that would include the Atlantic City casinos. You know, forget the 10 p.m. rule. I say no more serving food and drink indoors. People need, uh, you know, to be uh, hydrated, I suppose, hand out bottles of water and there's a rule you can lower your mask for a couple seconds, take a sip and then put your mask right back up. But uh, I say to my fellow Americans, order takeout all winter. Uh, it, It sucks, but it will make a huge difference. I think people sitting together indoors eating with their masks off for an hour or so at a time. No good. Uh, shut that down, and then maybe schools and casinos can stay open. And I realize I'm not a doctor, but uh, I'm, I'm going to play one on this podcast a bit. Yeah, and that federal shutdown may uh, run into some constitutional issues. So <laughs> right. That's, that's for another <laughs> podcast, though. But I will add one thing about the 251 COVID positive test, because, you know, at first that seems like, oh, my God, shut the damn thing down for, you know. But positives are sort of positive in the sense of they're testing everybody every day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they're presumably getting everybody um, and they're getting them early and they're sending them home. And, you know, there's no uh, evidence of hospitalizations or uh, intubating or deaths, God forbid. So it's, it's, uh, it's concerning, but it also suggests that they're, they're doing this, you know, I mean, if they came in and said, oh, you know, none of us have had any cases in the last month. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. That tells right. me uh, there's a cover up. So uh, the numbers, uh, you know, are, are a little high, but I think it, it kind of gives me a little more confidence that the casinos are doing their job and, and including the most important thing, you know, reporting them to to the state. So, um, yeah, I, I think it, it works for now. But I even though Murphy didn't say for now, I think it is for now. Right. And I'm not sure it's going to last too much longer. Right. And, you know, we and we should talk about uh, Vegas because that's certainly the the biggest city in terms of uh, casinos. You know, people are wondering if the other shoe will drop there. Clearly, Vegas being open to travelers has been really bad for the the spread of the virus. Um, But there is such reluctance, understandably, to shut down the whole city's economic driver. Uh, Governor Sisolak said on Wednesday that he's considering, quote, all mitigation options. So, we got to watch that one closely. If the lights go out in Vegas, some other casino cities and states that have been on the fence to this point uh, might follow their lead. Well, and I always felt like Nevada felt as if, you know, online casino gaming, why bother? You know, they've had online poker for as long as New Jersey and Delaware have, although it's not there aren't a lot of players or at least haven't been until now. Um, well, why bother? You know, you know, what could what could go wrong? What could happen? Well, <laughs> right. Let's take a look. Here, here's what can happen. Yep. Yep. All the 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 I was going to say all the states, but there really aren't that many. <laughs> all the states that have uh, that have allowed online casino play and online poker and all that. They're, uh, they're as we've been saying all year, they're weathering this so much better than the others. Uh, so, you know, if there's one good thing that might come out of all of this, it's that uh, perhaps in the next couple of years, more states will uh, push to legalize online casino play and, and help those casinos to uh, get additional reven- revenue, even, you know, even without shutdowns in COVID, when this is all over with, it's an extra form of, of revenue for the casinos and an extra option for the people in that state. Uh, I'd, I'd like to see the online casino legalization expand. Uh, we've only been making this point for a hundred something weeks now. <laughs> right. <laughs> and clearly we don't have as much juice as we think we do. Now, <laughs> a lot of these states are ignoring us still. So yep. come on, legislators, wake up. <laughs> it's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. We're getting somewhat meta with the interview segment this week, talking about a gambling podcast on our gambling podcast. Joining us now is David Hill, author of the book, The Vapors, freelance writer for countless outlets and host of a new six-part narrative podcast series for The Ringer called Gamblers, which premiered this week. And we've listened to the first episode focusing on Blackjack, Hole Carter, Gina Fiore. David, welcome to Gamble On. Thanks a lot. It's really cool to, uh, to be on the show. I'm a big fan. Cool. Thank you. Uh, Well, before we dive into the Gamblers podcast specifically, a quick question for you as a freelance journalist who often focuses on gambling. Have you found that the appetite from editors and publishers for gambling material has increased significantly post-PASPA? Yes, definitely. Um, Particularly, you know, for um, stories about sports betting, 
I, I, I got a slew of assignments after PESPA from, from places that had never asked me to write before who suddenly wanted the stories from me um, about sports betting in New Jersey specifically. Okay. So, and it, so it wasn't even so much you, you pitching and getting better responses. It was a lot of editors reaching out to you even with their pitches for you to write stuff. Yes, definitely. Okay. So uh, one article you wrote recently that uh, I don't know if you pitched it or an editor pitched it, but it got a lot of attention uh, was the one for the ringer last year called Requiem for a Sports Better, largely telling the story of Spanky, a well-known name in this little corner of the world. I'm curious, did that article and the reaction to it play a role in leading you to pitch this gambler's podcast series? It actually did. Yes. Um, So the, uh, that was another example. That's definitely an example of a story where an editor came to me and asked me if I would write about um, how uh, legal bookmaking in um, Jersey was affecting the, the street bookies, right? There was this idea, this sense that, um, they, were, um, that they were suffering, right? Because uh, now people could bet with their apps and bet with, with um, all the um, legitimate books. And I, so then I've kind of pitched this other idea back at them and said, well, what if I talked about this instead, right? What if I wrote something about how it's impacting these betters, um, professional betters? And so uh, they said, sure, go for it. And then um, I wrote the story about Spanky and it got a big response, I think bigger than what they were expecting. And, uh, you know, at that time, I think the ringer was, um, you know, they were doing a lot more podcasts and I, I guess maybe they knew at that time that they were going to get bought by Spotify. Maybe they didn't, I don't know, but podcasting was a big part of their, 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 um, where, the direction they were headed in. So the editor came to me and said, do you think that you could do a podcast about this? Like, do you think there are more people like Spanky out there? I said, yeah, I know there's a lot of them. And um, so they asked me to kind of come up with a list of episode ideas. And I came up with about a dozen different people, different episode ideas. And they said, yeah, this seems like an interesting idea. Let's try it. So it was it was a direct result of the story that I wrote about Spanky. Okay, very cool. Yeah, and, and David, just uh, listening to the first uh, episode this morning, uh, you mentioned over the course of the series we're going to meet a pool shark, a former bookie turned sports better, a horse handicapper, a poker player, a gin rummy player, and a hole carter. Uh, kind of reminds me of uh, Ocean's Eleven a little bit, but uh, <laughs> I'm wondering, how did you decide who to feature? And I think this is kind of for a young journalist question is, uh, you know, they always think, you know, how, how do you get the story? How do you get people to tell you something? How do you get people to trust you? I mean, was it a big challenge in all six cases or in any of the six cases? Or how did that go in terms of saying, hey, you know we want to be on this series yes thank you very much we move on or not so easy it was not easy at all i mean obviously people who the people in this world are not eager to be you know public figures and to have i mean even even the story i wrote about spanky you know originally spanky did not want his name to be in the piece you know he didn't want me to use uh you know any identifying information i really had to talk him into it over the course of months of hanging out with him and kind of earning his trust and also getting to see you know what the story could be like and i had to go through a similar process with some of the folks in this this show um so you know it took me a year to put this together and during that time i think some of some of that time was spent with me just sort of like you know getting people to to trust me a little bit i i in terms of where i came up with the different ideas i mean you know this the weird thing about this season was you know that we uh a kind of global pandemic set down on us while we were in the middle of producing this show and we thought we were going to have to just sort of scrap the whole show um, because, as you heard in the first episode, you know, a lot of it involved me traveling and going with people. I, you know, my idea was that I wanted to spend time with people while they were working and to show kind of a day in their life. And so some of the episode ideas that we had planned, we had to scrap once the, once, uh, the lockdown started. But when we realized that this thing could go on till the 12th and ever, we, uh, we kind of had to come up with new, new episode ideas that, that essentially I could do from here in my basement. Um, and so what you'll hear in this season is that some of the episodes are just, I mean, if you heard the episode with Scott Frost, which was is the next episode, um, he's a pool player. That was one that we had planned to do together. And I was going to go with him to a pool, uh, to a, a match that he had, had set up uh, where he was going to play a guy for a bunch of money. And that got canceled. So that whole episode is just me and him talking, you know, and some sound design and stuff like that. But there are a couple episodes like that where, you know, I came up with an idea about an internet poker player because I felt like, oh, this is one we could do with archival, et cetera. So I had to rethink it because of coronavirus. But um, but yeah, I, I, look, I've been covering gambling for a little while now. It's, it's kind of become a bit of a, a beat for me. And so I had some contacts in that world. And I just reached out to people I knew in different corners of that universe and said hey i'm doing this show what ideas do you have who do you think might be good for this you know who could you introduce me to or people that i kind of wanted to do a show about that i reached out to and said would you do this so 
you know, it helped to have some, it helped to already kind of have some contacts just from, you know, shoe leather reporting in this world. Yeah, that'd be my one hint to young journalists is uh, get the first one. The first one's the hardest, but once you have that, if somebody's reluctant, you can show them something you've done or at least mm -hmm. be able to t say, you know, feel free to get in touch with this person. They're already involved with the, sh with the series, you know, then, it, then it, it feels better. Nobody likes to go first. So, uh, and then, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's my tip for, for young journalists is uh, just get the first one. Mm -hmm. yeah. Even Gina didn't want to use her name in the episode. I really had to coax mm -hmm. her along to get her to, you know, see that this could be something that, she, you know, would be okay. I mean, and it sucks because I don't want to have to talk someone. Into, and in the end, I, don't, I didn't really want to twist anybody's arm. I mean, if Gina in the end said, I'm not going to use my real name, we would have used a different name or something. You know, I think it's better because she uses her real name and we know her, you know, things about her actual life. I think it's a better episode because of that. But at the end of the day, I would respect whatever the gambler, you know, wanted to do. That's that's what I would do because I don't want to, you know, blow somebody's spot up um, just for the sake of the story if they're not if they're not comfortable with that. Right. Um, so I'm not sure if you've uh, checked out the ESPN Plus series, Better Days, hosted by Mike Greenberg, but between that and your podcast, there's clearly a trend developing toward this narrative gambling storytelling being in vogue. Um, what do you see as your responsibility, if any, to tell these stories without glorifying degeneracy or gambling addiction, which is invariably a part of any big gambler's story? Well, I mean, hopefully I'd do it by not you know, by not telling the stories of just degenerate gamblers, right? I mean, I feel like this this show, I want to focus on people who are professionals who make their living gambling. And so I think what's sort of implicit in that is that they're winners and, and that they're not, you know, that they're not gambling pathologically. I mean, maybe they are gambling pathologically and winning. I don't know. I'm not a, you know, I'm not trained in <laughs> psychology, but uh, you know, I, I don't also don't want to like gloss over it. And I think we talked about it in some of the episodes kind of briefly mentioned, you know, um, uh, that, that, you know, that that's a real, that that's a reality that exists in this world. But, you know, like I said, I, I think this is going to be a show about professionals. Um, it's not a show necessarily about uh, just gambling, but it's a show about professionals. And also, I, I, you know, one of the things I'm hoping to do with the show is to show people that like gambling really exists outside of the world of um, casinos too, that casino gambling isn't the only way that people gamble. I mean, in our, originally we had planned to do an episode about a guy who, makes his living betting on basketball, you know, we're not betting on basketball, but playing basketball and betting on basketball courts, right. That he was like mm. a basketball hustler and, or like, you know, people that, you know, race cars and um, Texas and bet money on that. You know, I feel like anything that you do at sort of an amateur level, but you are putting up your money to do it, you know, that you're sort of like a semi pro you're gambling. You know what I mean? You're a gambler. I mean, you're, you, you lose, you lose your money. You win, you win money. And if that's how you make your living, then you're a professional gambler, whether you're playing cards or racing hot rods or whatever you're, you know, you're gambling. And I kind of want to, hopefully if we get to keep doing this show, I want to show like a much more, you know, sort of broader spectrum of how we think about um, what the definition of a professional gambler is. Yeah, I was just going to say, it sounds like uh, you have some interesting ideas in the hopper already then for a potential season two, hopefully a post-pandemic uh, season two that lets you get out there more and, and do the in-person stuff you had planned. Yeah, only if everybody subscribes um, and follows <laughs> on Spotify, maybe we'll get to do a second season. There you go. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I can't resist asking, uh, you know, my own personal uh, white whale, basically the Phil Ivey versus Borgata saga, you know, uh -huh. uh, everybody on the, in the audience probably knows, but uh, he and a, and a uh, Asian woman who could actually figure out the orientation of the backs of cards and the asymmetry, really. Um, they worked up a scheme in 2012 against Borgata, betting up to $100,000 a hand on mini Baccarat, which right away, that, that just blows me away. And uh, went back and forth over six years in the courts. I read tens of thousands probably of pages of documents. And I was really disappointed when it was settled. I wanted to go all the way to the Supreme Court. But <laughs> I'm just curious, the, the core issue is, you know, can you, uh, with edge sorting in this case is, they never touch the cards, you know. Is it cheating to ask the dealer to do something in your favor that they're dumb enough to do and the judge basically said it's effectively marking the cards well that's not what i think marking the cards are so i'm curious uh, both with gina how similar do you think that her, her talent is to ivy's partner and then also are you i'm not i'm not sure if it's cheating or not but are are you more certain uh, on either case yeah I, I wrote about ivy for the ringer um a while back when that was uh, all going on and I did a, fe a long feature on him and kind of where, you know, so I thought about this question a lot while I was writing that and interviewing people about it and um, getting kind of all kinds of opinions on all sides of this. And where I kind of ended up coming out on it was that if the casino 
if you ask the casino to do it and they do it and then they take your action, then it can't be cheating because if you lost the bet, they're going to keep your money. So essentially they're getting free rolled because if they win, the casino gets to say, well, you cheated, so you have to give us all the money back. But if Ivy had lost, then, you know, uh, Ivy, you know, there would have been no opportunity to get them. So that, that's essentially a free roll. And I felt like that's why I, in the end I ended up kind of feeling more sympathetic uh, to Phil Ivy because the casino at, at every point had the opportunity to say, no, we're not going to do that. But they did it out of greed because they wanted to win Ivy's money. Um, yeah, it's worth, it's worth noting that, that Ivy won millions of dollars at the supposed game of luck on two different visits to Borgata months apart. And then for the third visit, he says, hey, you know, $50,000 head maximum. Would you mind raising it to 100000 I mean, they couldn't detect any kind of uh, supposed cheating. But if I'm the casino, I'm saying, I don't know what the hell you're doing. But you're not, right. you're not, you're not welcome here to play mini background anymore. So the fact that they were foolish enough to let him continue – it does suggest greed, and it does make their case. Uh, I think in the court of public opinion, it's really weak. The legal argument is somewhat, somewhat a little different. So that's why I'm not sure legally what it is. But yeah, I think generally, certainly in the gambling uh, uh, realm, the feeling is that uh, that's Borgata's own problem, and, and they should have lost. Well, and I think that people also, people like lay people, mis misunderstand a lot about how gambling works too, right? And so, you know. Um, in Gina's case, she sees the whole card information. It doesn't make her a lock to win. It gives her an edge, certainly. She can still lose and often would have long losing sessions, right? Um, even knowing the whole card information, she could still lose. So it does give her, you know, a mathematical, you know, a, a slight edge over the house instead of the house having a slight edge over her. And so she's going to win over the long run. But, you know, it's not, if she was cheating, I, I think there would be no chance, you know, I think if, when I think it's my cheating, I think a cheater is going to win every time, right? Because they're, they're cheating. They're breaking the rules. You know, I have in the episode, Jason England talking about how there's a big difference too, between seeing the, um, the dealer's card with the naked eye versus using a shine or some other ob uh, uh, object or um, device to, to see it. And he makes the distinction between those two types of ways to see the whole card and say, you know, says that, you know, if you use a device, you're cheating. If you see with your naked eye, that's the casino's fault. It's just like if we were playing poker in a casino, the rule in the house is that in any poker room in the, in the world is that, you, that your player protects their own hand. You have to protect your own hand. It's your responsibility to make sure that the person sitting next to you doesn't see your cards. If they did see your cards because you were holding them up in front of your face, you don't get to then say, hey, give me that money back. You cheated by looking at my hand. The rule is protect your hand. Well, that's the same for the house. The house should protect their hand, right? If they shouldn't be, if they want to have some information that the player shouldn't have, then it's the house's responsibility to make sure the player doesn't have that information. And if they're just, you know, flashing the card, that's all Gina's doing. She's looking for dealers that flash the card and that's, that's where she's getting that edge. And, um, and so I don't think of it as cheating. Do I think that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's angle, you know, it's, it's, it's advantage play. It's angle shooting mm -hmm. for sure, but it doesn't seem like it's something that should be illegal. It's definitely not like she's um, she or any other whole carters are using, you know, or are um, sort of like, uh, sophisticated gamblers, right? They're just they're just finding opportunities that have a lot that have value, have have a lot of uh, positive value for them, and they're exploiting those opportunities. And so, you know, more power to them. I definitely think there's a big difference though between somebody who does that and some of the other stuff that Gina did, like playing poker or um, some of the other gambling that she does, where she's just sort of you know being a very sophisticated gambler and winning because of her um, you know her sense of probability and odds and and how to play games. Well, as long as we've touched on uh, poker a, a little bit, I'm, I'm a poker guy. I'm just curious. I know one of your upcoming uh, episodes is about a poker player, and I think you said it was an online player specifically. Is it someone I'm likely to have heard of? Uh, and uh, can you reveal who it is, or do we yeah, have to wait till the episode drops? No, it's fine. It's about Phil Galfond. Oh, um, okay. And so it's about the Galfond Challenge, and um, you know that was an example of one of the episode ideas that we came up with in in quarantine right and so that all started to happen and it was kind of a big quite a big uh creating a big stir within the poker world and so i reached out to phil and i said you know i'd love to do an episode about this i'm, I'm doing this show we're looking for some new episode ideas and he was very gracious and said yeah let's do it um and i i actually listened to the episode today I, I think it's great i'm quite proud of it it's it's weird that like you can we were able to turn something that's you know essentially watching people play poker on twitch you know watching these <laughs> right. like two-dimensional cards and we were able to turn in something that felt like a sporting event you know it has real drama and stakes to it and um so i i i'm excited about that episode i think people will i think people will see poker in a whole different way um than they, they did before once they listen to it
Mm, very cool. Yeah, Phil's an interesting guy. So I'm looking forward to that. And I'm looking forward to uh, hearing all of the rest of the episodes. Uh, so congrats on, on the podcast, uh, David. It's been great talking to you. Thanks so much for, for coming on Gamble On. Thank you both for having me again. Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. We'll get to the Fast Five shortly, but first, let's update our shared bankroll. And we are officially on a losing streak, three straight weeks of negative ROI. Uh, We had one winning bet last week. My over on the Dolphins-Chargers game got there, although it was a sweat. We needed the Chargers touchdown with under two minutes left uh, to, to push it over. 48. So uh, we, we got there, but it was close. Uh, we did pocket a $100 profit on that, but I lost that $100 right back with my boxing bet on Terrence Crawford to win by knockout in round seven to 12 as he took care of business in round four. Uh, John took an L with USC at minus 14 and a half against Arizona. The Trojans only won by four points, so that cost us $110. And John's Masters bets, unfortunately, fared about as well as Tiger on the 12th on Sunday, as he put $40 on Molinari, top 20, $60 on Bubba Watson, top 20, $20 on Patrick Cantlay to win, $20 on Cantlay, top 5, and $20 on Cantlay, top 10. Uh, Last one came close, I guess, but uh, none of those cashed. Uh, That means we lost $270 this week. We are now $499 in the hole. We still have $771 on hold in futures bets. So we have $8,730 left to bet with, and you're up first, John. Yes, and Cantley Top 20, which is my most common bet over the last year, would have been a winner, but I digress. (laughs) USC had that four-point lead uh, before three straight drives in the third quarter, got them inside the 10-yard line or closer. One was within inches of the goal, and in that span, Arizona only produced one first down in that stretch. So, you know, uh, at the end of that entire stretch, the game was then tied. So enough said other than the USC coach is comically inept, and I should have known that going in, so that's my bad. Anyway, give me Florida minus 31 and a half points against Vanderbilt at 107 to win 100. Yeah, that's a lot of points, but Gators quarterback Kyle Trask is on a mission, and this may well be the best offense in college football. You know, Vanderbilt is 0-6, and as I noted once before, their players are burdened by classwork cutting into their practice time. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna let uh, our boss Adam Small know that you're uh, you're going against his Vandy team again. Uh, but it seems seems to be the right move if they're Owen. Well, I am showing respect for them as an academic institution. There you go. He'll take that. Um, for me, my first bet, I'm going back to the Thursday night football player prop. I'm 0-1 this season, but I'm I'm getting back to 500 tonight. I'm sure of it. Uh, I made a bet in real life before the season on Kyler Murray's rushing yards. The line was 475 and a half. I'm reluctant to bet overs on season-long player props because of the injury factor, but that line was just way too low, and he's at 604 through nine games. He, <laughs> nice. he hit the over in the eighth game. Now, I still haven't been paid, but that's another matter. I think the, mm. the book seems to be following the fine print and uh, waiting to see if 16 games are played. But anyway, uh, that season-long number was too low, and his number for this game is a little too low. He's averaging 67 rushing yards per game. But against Seattle tonight, the FanDuel line is 58 and a half. He's beaten that number the last four games in a row. He's topped it in seven of nine games this season. He got 67 against this Seattle defense a few weeks ago. So let's bet $110 to win 100 on Murray over 58 and a half rushing yards. Yeah, that sounds good. I, I will tell you that back in the 1970s, the Atlanta Falcons had a running back named Dave Hampton, and uh, the, it was 14-game schedule, so 1,000 yards was a little more meaningful, and he got there in the final game. It was, it was very exciting, and then he lost about six yards on his next run, and he didn't did the 1,000. <laughs> wow. Uh, that would have been a really bad beat, but I don't think bookies were taking player props in the 1970s, but I could be <laughs> right, wrong. Right. Uh, so anyway, uh, I'm imposing a week off from golf after that Masters debacle. Um, so give me Indiana plus 20 and a half points versus Ohio State, also at just 107 to win 100. Uh, sure, the Buckeyes have a 25-game winning streak against Indiana, uh, but these aren't your father's Hoosiers, I, I think. Uh, Indiana's defense is underrated, and Ohio State's defense, I suspect, isn't that elite. So that combination makes this a reasonably close game. 
Okay. Yeah. You, you know that I barely know anything about college football and really don't follow it, but, but I have, uh, my ears have perked up a little bit with this Indiana story. It's, uh, I, as ever since that, uh, that close one against Penn state, I've kind of been keeping an eye on what they're doing. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a nice story. So uh, we're getting, uh, basically three touchdowns there. All right, go Hoosiers. Um, I know you hate my parlays, John, uh, but but hear me out on this one. Uh, my first instinct was to bet on my Eagles at plus 160 on the money line at Fox Bet against the Browns. Uh, last week against the Giants was a total disaster for the Eagles, but it turns this game, uh, their most winnable remaining non-division game, into an extremely important one. They're getting healthy on offense. Uh I'm really tired of Doug Peterson and especially his insistence on killing momentum by putting in Jalen Hurts. Uh, but uh-huh. I think they buckle down here. And uh, and you and I certainly agree the Browns are a little overrated. This feels like close to a 50-50 game in terms of who wins. So I think plus 160 on the Eagles is good there. But why get only plus 160 when we can get plus 247 by parlaying it with the Chiefs to win against the Raiders. I'm calling this the Andy Reid past and present money line parlay. Uh, we have Andy and the Chiefs off a bye against a team they lost to once this season. They want revenge. The Raiders have a lot of COVID issues. I feel very confident in that end of the parlay. The Eagles, you know, it's a coin toss, but I like the payout here. If the Eagles should happen to win and then the Chiefs blow it for me, you have my word, John, that I will stop betting parlays for the rest of 2020, if that's how it goes. But for now, let's bet $60 to win $148 on the Andy Reid Moneyline Parlay. Okay. And we wrap things up with the Fast Five, where after I scratched and clawed my way back for the past month, John kicked my butt last week and is now solidly back in the lead. We had two shared games. We won with Miami and lost with the Bengals. We had one head-to-head as John took New Orleans minus nine and I took San Francisco plus nine and the Saints ended up winning by 14. Then I whiffed my other two. Ravens in a game that I thought was an easy pick and I was wrong. And Bills plus one and a half where the Hale Murray beat me. Although I was getting the worst possible number there. I have to criticize myself for taking a plus one and a half team that was plus two and a half at most other books. Uh, John, meanwhile, aced his other two, Rams and Vikings, both as small favorites. So it was a four and one week for John and a one and four week for me. Uh, John's record is now 28, 21 and one. And by going nine and 16, the first five weeks, and then 16 and nine, the next five weeks, I am now exactly (laughs) 500, 25 and 25. We have seven weeks to go. Three and a half games separate us. And I'm up first this week. Uh, And I know based on the parlay bet I just placed that you probably expect me to start with the Eagles plus three and a half. Mm -hmm. But I actually found five games I feel more comfortable with. I like the Eagles Mm -hmm. at plus 160 on that money line. I see a little less of an edge betting that one against the spread. So instead, here goes. I'll start with the Falcons getting four and a half at New Orleans. Atlanta has won three of four. They're playing well under Raheem Morris. They're a perfectly decent team. And Jameis Winston is the king of the pick six. The Saints are due for a letdown game. I don't hate the Falcons to win outright here, actually, and I I at least like them to cover. Uh, Next one is my favorite line of the week. Even though I'm giving up the hook with it, the Lions plus two and a half at Carolina. The Panthers are without McCaffrey, and I think they're probably going to be without Bridgewater. Detroit needs this game to stay in the playoff hunt. The line is one and a half elsewhere, but we're getting two and a half here, so give me the Lions. Uh, Next up, the Patriots have not been kind to me this season. Every time I think I have them figured out, they zag on me. Uh, But they're only favored by one and a half at Houston. And the Texans are two and seven and 0-7 against teams not named the Jaguars. Uh, A Cam Newton dud is always in play, but I suspect this team got a little swagger back by beating the Ravens. They're four and five. This is a must win. I'll take the Pats. Uh, Next up, we go to my Andy Reid end of the parlay bet. Um, I feel better about the Chiefs in terms of of betting against the spread than I do uh, the Eagles. They're minus seven and a half against the Raiders. The hook is not ideal, but that line is up to eight elsewhere. Who knows if the Raiders might be short some starters on defense due to COVID. If they are, that means a lot of points for the Chiefs offense. Uh, So I think they win this comfortably. I'm taking Kansas City. And lastly, the Dolphins have been good to us. Uh, The Broncos, meanwhile, have lost three of four and easily could have lost four of four. Drew Locke is not the answer there. 
Don't overthink this one. At minus three and a half, we're getting a point or two of value on Miami, I think. Uh, I don't mind the hook, uh, although I wouldn't be shocked if the Broncos backdoor this one. But I still think Miami minus three and a half is the right side. All right. Well, I'm up. Uh, this is the third year in three tries that I'm at the 55 to 58 percent mark uh, after 10 weeks. Uh, last year, I actually improved a little down the stretch. But in 2018, I went 0 and 5 and 1 and 4 in weeks 11 and 12 and mm. uh, never recovered. Finished the season under 500. So this is crunch time and I'm nervous, I got to say. Mm. Um, opening with, uh, yeah, Eagles plus three and a half over Browns. Okay. <laughs> a, a bit healthier Eagles squad, as you noted, with still a modicum of pride and pedigree versus the Browns team that seems less than the sum of its parts. Uh, the Browns kicking status uh, is questionable for a bonus point, perhaps, right. uh, maybe a key bonus point. Um, Titans plus six and a half over the Ravens. You know, the narrative says the Ravens rise up and slay the impudent Titans, and maybe they do. But that Ravens offense has slipped to mediocre, uh, even as the defense remains elite, for sure. Uh, I think just think Derrick Henry does it again. Um, then, yeah, Dolphins minus three and a half over Broncos. Me too. Uh, my only loss last week was in large part due to dreaming that Big Ben wouldn't play for the Steelers. Now it's Drew Locke who is questionable, but that's true even if he plays, isn't it? So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm pressing my luck a little bit with the Dolphins, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Um, then Chargers minus eight and a half points over the Jets. Uh, this is the first time I've ever circled one team on my sheet, which I literally have a sheet, literally circle with a pen, uh, and then flipped. Um, the narrative is all Jets. The players have some pride. They know this is the big chance for a win and all that. Um, Chargers, you know, covering any any spread at all is uh, is a challenge. But narratives aren't destiny. The Jets can't score at all. I mean, 121 points. The football team is second worst with 180. I mean, and the Chargers can and do score. So uh, I think I have the right side there now that I switched. Uh, we'll see. Uh, finally, uh, Colts minus one and a half over the Packers. Uh, we want to believe the Packers are Super Bowl contenders, but they're one and one this season versus winning teams. They edged the Saints and got walloped by the Buccaneers in weeks three and four. Now, I'll admit the Colts just got their first such W last week over the Titans. So maybe the Packers possibly having a decimated receiving core is a stronger point here. And there's my picks. All right. Interesting. I almost went with the Packers uh, side, actually. That was one of my that and the Eagles plus three and a half were the two that I was considering putting in my five and didn't. So we almost had a head to head. But instead, we've got uh, one shared pick and uh, four independent games. And uh, so I am uh, reluctantly a big Jets fan coming up this week. Yeah, I was close with you on Alliance, too. That would be right. pick six. But pick six, so to speak. Like right. <laughs> pick, no, pick six is that's the James oh, Winston well. pick. There you go. Yeah, uh, that's true. That's plus 900, by the way. Yeah. That, that he'll throw a pick six. Yes, that he throws Ooh. a pick six. Yeah. All right. As soon as we're done recording this podcast, I'm <laughs> finding out what book that is at. That's a nice return. All right. That will do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, David Hill. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And with that, John, please take us out. Eric, I will now shock you in the audience by saying something nice for once about, yes, parlays. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. My awakening comes from my season-long golf pool that ended on Sunday as Dustin Johnson donned the green jacket at the Masters. You know, I sat on my final Patrick Cantlay pick for months and watched as some rivals use their final Cantlay cards down the stretch. Then in the second of last week, two of the five rivals in front of me in the standings, they did the same. So this likely felt like winning the first leg or two of a 17 parlay, I think. Uh, then I noticed the top two players were the only two ahead of me who could pick Cantlay. They had more likely picks, such as DJ or Justin Thomas and so on. So I figured I had a chance to be the leading Cantlay picker on the board. Uh, the picks are revealed Thursday morning, and my hopes are rewarded, like winning another parlay leg. So after two rounds, Cantlay's only one shot off the lead. And if he wins it, I grab a mid-three digits first prize from out of nowhere. Um, Kind of like winning a parlay. Um, I've got five <laughs> legs in a way at this point, and I'm looking very competitive in the last two. It was pretty exciting. You know, then Saturday comes and I get hit with the equivalent of a couple of pick sixes that we talked about. <laughs> and by nightfall, I can tear up my ticket. Uh, the point is that as disappointed as I was, I didn't lose much money. So I had a chance to win a lot. And it was a rush to get pretty far down the road. So I've kind of seen the light a little bit. Now, I'm going to keep reminding listeners that sportsbooks are enticing you with parlay teasers because that's how they get rich. It's yep. true. But as long as you don't risk more money than you can afford to lose, uh, yeah, I have seen a light. And I'll, I'll admit there's something to these parlays after all. And with that, until next time, gamble on, everybody, even if it's a responsible spending parlay. <laughs> <laughs>